And now, Lord, as we come to Your Word, we come as hungry servants, asking simply to be fed, to be nourished by Your Word. We pray, O Lord, that Christ would be glorified as we study Your Word, and that, again, our hearts would be turned more fully unto Him. As we consider Him, as we consider His countless perfections, we pray, O Lord, that You would show us our need for Him. And we pray that You would show us the way that He meets every need that we have. We pray that You'd save our children and that the gospel seeds that are planted today in time would bear fruit. Lord, again, if You can save us, we know, we know that You can save them. And so to that end, Lord, we ask for wisdom in discipling them. We pray for their ears to be open to Your Word and for our ears to be open to Your Word as well. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the glorious truths of Your Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll be continuing our study in the Gospel of John today. Uh, We'll be looking at John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 17. And we'll be looking at verses 4 and 5 today as we continue this study. This is actually the 119th lesson that we've had in John's Gospel. And this has just been an amazing study for for me. Uh, I, I have been transformed by studying His Word. I've deepened my understanding of it. It has just been uh, so good for me, and I, I pray that it has been uh, as much of a blessing for you uh, as it has been for me. But today we'll be looking at John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. As Jesus comes to a close in this first section of his, what we call his high priestly prayer. The reason we call it his high priestly prayer is because as you look at this chapter, as you look at the outline of this chapter, you would see that it corresponds exactly with the requirements of the high priest from Leviticus chapter 16, where the high priest was to pray for and consecrate himself. Then he was to pray for the priests who were under him. And then he was to pray for Uh, all of the assembly. And in this sense, Jesus follows this pattern. He prays for himself. We're going to be ending that prayer today. Uh, But after that, he moves on to praying for his disciples, uh, for the 11 disciples. And after that, he prays for those who would believe as a result of their testimony. That is, he's praying for the church throughout the age which was to come. Now, every Christian, every one of us, should long to hear the words spoken to us by Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. But if we understand ourselves, if we think about what's in those words, what he would be saying about us, if we understand ourselves, if we understand how just unlike God we are, even if we should live several decades into sanctification, we are still so far away from being like God, we know that these words will only be spoken truthfully as a result of God's grace working in us and through us. There's nothing in us uh, of ourselves 
that is worthy of such commendation or, or merit. Scripture tells us in no uncertain terms, there is none who does good. There is not even one. That's the human condition apart from God's grace working in and through a person. And yet, as we go through the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, what you'll notice is that part of that fruit, one of the things mentioned in there is goodness. Goodness. It's only and it's entirely because of God's grace that any good might be found in us. That's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit must produce that goodness in us. And the same is true of the word faithful. Uh, it's, It's not in and of ourselves something that's inherent to us. What faith we have is a gift from God, not of ourselves, lest any should boast, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So when we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, it'll actually give us nothing to feel prideful about in and of ourselves, because if we did anything worthy of God's commendation, it's entirely because of His grace and the work that He did with by His grace in us and through us in this life. And I think that when we do hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, that it'll be a moment in which we see and know God's grace and glory like we never have before. To hear those words, however, will give us a moment of unparalleled satisfaction, a satisfaction that we have never felt in this world. However, we all must live in light of the reality that whatever we do for the glory of God in this life, we could have done more. And whatever we did do, we could have done better. Could we have shared the gospel with just one more person? Of course. Could we have sinned one fewer time, one less time? Undoubtedly. Uh, you know, could we have been more committed to doing everything that we do for the glory of God? Of course. We realize that Christ is the one who lived up to God's standard. Only He could say no to all those questions in all honesty. As for us, Richard Phillips notes in his commentary correctly, he says, quote, "...nothing we do in this life merits true and ultimate satisfaction since none of our works is perfectly good." End quote. But praise be to God, that cannot be said of Jesus. Jesus is able to be ultimately and eternally satisfied with the work that He accomplished on earth because what He did, He did perfectly. He did what He did not only with the right motivation, but He did what He did without ever once, for even one nanosecond, doing it for doing something with with sin involved. His works were never, ever corrupted by sin. Only He did what He did without falling short of God's holy, perfect, righteous standards. The story is told of a Puritan who said to, to those who were gathered around him as he laid on his deathbed, all the sin that I have committed I cast into a burning pile, and with the good that I have done I do the same. Unlike Christ, all of my best work was marred by sin. But he knew, 
As we must know, he knew that as Jesus prayed in the presence of his disciples, this wonderful prayer that we find in John chapter 17 that we refer to as the high priestly prayer, he knew that he was able to look back on his life on earth, to look back at the work that he had accomplished and was about to complete with only a few hours of time left before he would be on a a cross, and to have a perfectly clean and content conscience about the work that he had done in this world. His work had never once been marred by sin. And there was no good that he had come to accomplish which he had left unfinished or neglected. And so today as we come to the glorious conclusion of this first section of Jesus' high priestly prayer, the section in which he prayed for and consecrated himself as he prepared to offer himself as the once and for all sacrifice for sin on behalf of all who we, had, uh, who we saw in uh, verse 2 had been given to Him by the Father. This section of, of the prayer started in verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1, with a prayer that the Father would glorify Him, but only uh, that He would be glorified in order, in order that the Father would be glorified in Him. And it's going to close with essentially the same prayer, that Christ be glorified. See, whatever we don't do for the glory of God is sin. And everything that Jesus did was for the glory of God. That was the highest priority in Jesus' mind as He prepared to present Himself as the once and for all sufficient sacrifice for sin. But the point of this passage that we come to today is that because Jesus completed the work that He was sent to accomplish, and did so without sinning, we can trust Him to be faithful to His promise to save His people. Let me say it again. Because Jesus completed the work that He was sent to accomplish, and because He did so without sin, we can trust Him to be faithful to His promise to save His people. So knowing that His work was about to be completed within only a few hours' time, and resolved to finish the work that He came to accomplish without sinning, Jesus now prays confidently. And He does so in the past tense, and we're going to get to that as He looks back on His work on earth. So we look at, uh, we, we read in John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, Jesus concludes this section of the prayer by praying, I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had before, with You before the world was. So what we find in these two wonderful verses is a tremendous amount of support for what theologians refer to as the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. Jesus didn't only come to live a perfect life. He didn't only come to set an example for us to follow in. That's kind of a, a secondary uh, reason that He came. No, He prays here about a specific purpose, a mission that explains why He had to condescend, why He had to take on flesh, why He had to live a perfect life and die a sinner's death. See, there was a specific work that we see referenced here, a work that the Father had given the Son to accomplish. Which is why Jesus says in verse 4 that He had accomplished the work which you, that's referring to the Father, which you have given Me, or Jesus, to do. 
So what work did the Father give the Son to do? That's a very important question. The answer is that the Father and the Son entered into a covenant whereby the Son would willfully step down from eternity, step down from His throne in heaven, take on flesh, and redeem a people who were given to Him by the Father. Now there have been breadcrumbs, so to speak, that have been left throughout John's Gospel which have hinted, maybe even just very subtly, uh, at this covenant between the first and the second persons of the Godhead. Uh, For example, a famous one, John 3.16, that referred to the Father having sent the Son. Uh, In John 3.34, Jesus speaks of Himself as He whom God has sent. Uh, In chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me and to accomplish His work. Uh, In uh, chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus said, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So we see this theme over and over again throughout John's Gospel. Uh, Jesus was sent to accomplish a particular, a specific task, a work. But one of the things that I want us to see is that this covenant of redemption isn't only found in John's Gospel. Rather, it's found throughout the Scriptures. Uh, in Psalm uh, 2, Psalm 2 refer, uh, refers to it. We read a, a summarization of the terms of the covenant that the Father had established with Him. In uh, Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9 we, uh, of Psalm 2, we read, uh, He said to, to me, You are my, sa- my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Those are the terms of a covenant, an agreement, that if the Son asks Him, this is what the Father will give him. Uh, We read of this covenant of redemption in Isaiah 53, uh, verse 10, where we read, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Notice the conditional clause there. If he would render himself as a a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So we see the conditions and we see the reward. Now, some may say, I've read Scripture a hundred times and I've never seen any reference to this covenant of redemption. But it's there. It's clearly there. Uh, It may not be referred to or discussed by name, but neither is the Trinity. And yet, who's going to deny that the Trinity is absolutely found in the pages of Scripture? So is the covenant of redemption. The reason that we are saved is because the Father and the Son entered into a covenant whereby anyone would be saved. Whereby, if anybody's going to be saved, this is the only way by this covenant of redemption. So when did this happen? When was this this covenant established? Uh, When did the the Father uh, establish the terms and conditions of this mission? The answer is, in eternity past. If we can even begin to wrap our minds around a term like eternity past. Uh, St. Augustine 
was once asked by an, an unbelieving skeptic, what was God doing in eternity past? And St. Augustine referred, uh, re, uh, responded to him kind of tongue-in-cheek. He said back to him, uh, God was creating hell for curious souls. And I don't think he was being serious, but he was making a serious point. And that point is that it is very unwise, it is, it's foolish to speculate about God's activity in eternity past, especially when we as finite beings can't even really be, even begin to wrap our minds around a concept like eternity past. But without entering into speculative territory, the Bible does have quite a bit to say about some of the things that God did before uh, He created. Uh, it would be foolish for us to think that God got bored or that he got lonely in eternity past, and that that's why he engaged in creation. It would be equally foolish for us to think that God didn't plan for what would transpire when he did create, as if God were a God who just kind of fakes it until he makes it, figuring things out as he goes along, and just kind of hoping for the best uh, when the end comes. That is not at all what God did. And God was not bored. And God was not lonely in eternity past. But with these things in mind, God knew the end of creation from the beginning. He ordained all things that come to pass before the foundation of the world, including the plan of salvation. Listen to what we read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. It's a, it's a benediction. And uh, you know, kind of one of those things that you would end a letter with, which is kind of what it does. There we read, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Did you catch the reference in there? About the great shepherd of the sheep being brought up from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. And, and how that actually ensures that the sheep will be equipped with everything they need to walk according to His will, that which is pleasing in His sight. That's a reference right there to this covenant of redemption. Peter also referred to the covenant of redemption, writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, of Jesus being the unblemished Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So this was established before the foundation of the world? Yes. Before creation. Now you might say, but wait a minute, Jesus wasn't slain before creation. He, he was slain in time, but, but Peter's saying that he was slain from before the foundation of the world. How, how can Peter say that? That doesn't seem to be making any sense. And the answer is because the Son, God the Son, agreed to the terms of the covenant in eternity past, and having agreed to do so, it was as good as done. So from the foundation of the world, it was as good 
as done. See, this was, this was God's plan all along. God didn't say, well, let's, let's hope for the best. We'll put Adam and Eve in a garden and we'll just hope that they don't sin and we'll see what happens. Oh, they sinned. We better come up with a plan. That's not how it worked. God had a plan all along. He knew that Adam and Eve would sin. He knew everything that would take place throughout all of the course of human history from beginning to end because He ordained all that would take place, all that would come to pass. Now, somebody might object to that and say, well, so you're saying that God ordained sin? And I'd say yes, but not in the sense that He caused it. Not, don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that if God has ordained sin, He must have created it or caused it. Perish the thought. Our, our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, puts it this way. It says, God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Here's the important part. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. Nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears His wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing His decree. To put that in modern English for you, God has ordained all things that come to pass, but that does not mean that He caused sin or that He violated the will of the creature who chose to sin. R.C. Sproul once noted of this covenant of redemption, he said, quote, The God of Scripture has no plan B or plan C. His plan A from, is from everlasting to everlasting. It is both perfect and unchangeable as it rests on God's eternal character. End quote. So all these verses, all, all these passages that we've looked at, they speak of the salvation that was to be accomplished by Christ on behalf of His people as being the plan from eternity past, which was established as a covenant between the Father and the Son. The work that the Father gave to the Son, the work that the Father gave to Christ, involved three very specific things. First of all, it involved that the Son would take on flesh and be born of a virgin. Now let's stop there because a lot of people say, well, you know, that Hebrew word that gets translated virgin, it, it might just refer to a young maiden or something like that. It doesn't have to refer to a virgin. Why do we even have to believe that it was a virgin? Why does that matter? And the answer is, because if he was born of a virgin, the sin nature of Adam doesn't pass on to him. And yet the humanity of his mother does. So he would be fully God and fully man. He would thus know all the weaknesses and temptations to be experienced in our nature as human beings, but he would not have the inclination to follow those temptations. He wouldn't have the sin nature of Adam. Secondly, Christ would be born under the law. He would assume responsibility for and adherence and obedience to it. And He would also be responsible for the penalty of the sins of those He would represent, those He would redeem. Third and finally, after accomplishing what was necessary for the redemption of all whom the Father gave to Him, He would send the Holy Spirit to actually apply the salvation that He had accomplished, the salvation that He had earned uh, for them 
through the new birth. That's how it is applied to a person. It will be applied by grace alone through the gift of faith in Christ alone. In exchange, so those are the terms of the covenant for the Son. In exchange, the Father promised numerous blessings to the Son, including a people so great that they could not be numbered by man. That's what we read about in Revelation, right? There's a sea of of souls that were redeemed that cannot be numbered. And He also would give all power and authority in heaven and on earth for the government of the world and of the church to Christ. And Christ would build His church. The Father would also reward the Son with the glory which Christ the Son had with the Father before the foundation of the world. That's what Jesus prays for specifically here in verse 5. But before we get to verse 5, maybe you're wondering why I've spent, I don't know, what, 20-25 minutes talking about the covenant of redemption? Why does the covenant of redemption even matter? Maybe you're wondering why it's so important that I'd spend that much time talking about it. And I, I guess... There are kind of two answers. Uh, there are always two answers because the first one's always the same. It's important because everything in Scripture is important, right? It's all there uh, to profit us. For, it's all there for our benefit. We believe that all Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, all Scripture is breathed out and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. We believe that, right, family? We believe that. It's God's Word. And if we take God seriously, don't you think we would take His Word seriously? The answer is yes, absolutely. If we take God seriously, we take His Word seriously. This is how you find somebody who does not take God seriously because they don't take His Word seriously. We take His Word seriously because we take God seriously. But to give you a more specific answer about why the covenant of redemption matters, it's important because it reminds us of some very important truths. It reminds us that Christ didn't just step out of eternity haphazardly, uh, live a, a perfect life and die a sinner's death only so that He could hope for the best. You know, as, as he hung on the cross, he wasn't just saying, man, I really hope that, that the gospel goes forward. I, I really hope that somebody somewhere believes in me. That's not what happened. Friends, God never, ever hopes for the best. Never. He knows all things. If, a, if God is all-knowing, how can he just hope for the best? No, he knows the end from the beginning. He's unchanging. He's not learning. He knows all things. He doesn't just hope for the best. The salvation of His people doesn't depend on the brittle foundation of human reason or human acceptance. If you're in Christ, let me tell you why. If you have believed in Christ, it's because God loved you first. That's what John says in 1 John, right? We love because He first loved us. If you're in Christ, it's because God loved you. And that He loved you so much that He made specific plans to save you. He not only ordained that you would be saved, but He orchestrated when. He orchestrated how. He orchestrated who you would hear preach the Gospel. And that you would believe. That the Holy Spirit would apply Christ's redemption individually to you. He planned this from eternity. So great is His love for you 
that it's accurate to say that His love for you actually has no beginning and it has no end. He has an eternal love for you. And that's what we find in the covenant of redemption. That's what we're reminded of by the covenant of redemption. Now, if, if you even can begin to grasp that kind of love, I don't believe that a person can remain thankless or ungrateful to Him. How can we not live our lives in the light of this great love? Of this salvation so great? How could we not hate the thought of returning to the darkness that we were born into? He has loved you. And He has made every plan and provision to prepare to bless you and to keep you and to grow you in the likeness of Christ And He did this from eternity past. It's something that is just mind-blowing. Our minds can't completely grasp it. How can a person grasp this, though, only to turn around and live their life as if they don't belong to Him? If you can even begin to grasp this, how can it not change everything? Everything that you love. Everything that you hate. Everything that you aspire to. I don't believe a person can if you begin to grasp this. Now, I'm I'm not saying that a person who just begins to grasp this isn't going to sin. Because you will. You will sin. And you'll sin repeatedly. In fact, you'll sin every day. In fact, you sin every nanosecond of your life. Because you don't love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and you don't love your neighbor as yourself. None of us do. The only person who did that was Jesus. Only Jesus is sinless. Every moment of our existence, we fall short of the greatest commandment. So I'm not saying that you won't sin. What I'm saying is that you will quickly learn to hate, from your, hate your sin, and you will learn to desire to run from your sin. And the more you set your minds on things like this glorious covenant of redemption, the more joy you will find in obedient submission to Christ. So set your mind on this covenant of redemption. Do it frequently. And live your life in the light of this magnificent and marvelous truth of God's love. His eternal love for all who believe in Christ. Now maybe you're thinking that it's strange that Christ speaks in the the past tense as He prays this since He hasn't actually in time completed this work. His work is going to be completed the following day, but He's still got a few hours to go until He reaches the finish line, right? So, So why is He speaking in the past tense? Augustine, again, he responded to that criticism. He said this, quote, Christ says He has finished that which he most surely knows he will finish. Thus, long before in prophecy, he used, he used verbs of past tense when that which he had said was to come to pass after many years. End quote. In other words, God knows the future. And he knows it infallibly. So he can speak about what is yet to come as if it has already happened. This is something that only God can do. He can speak of future events as though they have already happened. And the reason that God, and only God, can do this is because 
Not only are His purposes and His plans unchanging, because He Himself is unchanging, but more importantly, or at least equally importantly, His plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. Nobody can stand in His way. Nobody can stop Him from doing what He has desired to accomplish. Nothing. Nobody. His plans will be accomplished. So He can speak in past tense. Knowing this, Christ could look ahead to the finish line and speak as if He had already crossed it. Because nothing could change. Nothing could alter His sovereign will in the least bit. He had done what He had come to do. He had lived a perfectly sinless life, never transgressing God's law. He lived the life that God demands for a person to receive salvation. And His perfection was to be imputed. It was to be credited to all who were given to Him by the Father. He was their, what we would call, federal head. He was their mediator as we learned about in the Milk for Little Ones catechism today. While He would do that, while He would give us His perfection as our representative, He would also satisfy the wrath of God against His people's sin on their behalf. Friends, this is what we need if we're to stand before a holy and righteous God who cannot look upon sin. If God cannot look upon sin, how can He look upon me? Because when He looks upon me, He doesn't see my sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. And when He looks upon Christ on Calvary, He doesn't see Christ's righteousness. He sees my sin. And all who trust in Christ. This past week, I was evangelizing a young man on Twitter and I urged him to understand that we need to have Christ's righteousness when we stand before God if we are to not be condemned to hell forever. And this young man's response was to tell me that he thinks that God is going to judge him based on how much he loved his neighbor and how moral of a person he was toward his fellow man. In other words, he was rejecting Christ's perfect righteousness because he thought that his own righteousness was sufficient. Friends, let me just urge you not to make that same mistake. You and I have no righteousness of our own before God. The best that we have to offer Him are filthy rags in His sight. That's our best. What would our worst be if filthy rags are what our best is? You must stand before Him clothed with Christ's perfect righteousness. The way to be clothed in that righteousness is to savingly believe in Him. The only alternative. The only alternative is to perish in your sin and spend eternity in hell in your own righteousness. Christ was able to look back on His perfect life and know that He had accomplished all the work that the Father had given Him to accomplish. He did not die only so that the Gospel message would go forth throughout the world and He would just hope for the best, but He also He died, but He also actually and literally took the sins of His people upon Himself and bore the wrath that was due to those sins. That's why when He would speak the words, it is finished the next day, the work was completed. 
whatever was necessary for the redemption of His people was finished. It was, it was done. Richard Phillips says this. He says, quote, Jesus died not merely to send a message, but to complete a work, the result of which was salvation for those belonging to Him. End quote. And we know that Jesus not only did cross the finish line, He not only finished the work perfectly that had been given to Him by the Father, but we know that He did so to the Father's satisfaction. That the Father was pleased with the work that Christ accomplished. How do we know that? How do we know that the Father was satisfied by Christ's work? The answer is because though Jesus died, He was raised from the dead on the third day. His resurrection was proof that the debt of His people, of all who would believe in Him, was paid in full and that their salvation was accomplished and certain. It would be applied in due time as time played out through the ministry of the church. The church would proclaim the Gospel to the ear, but it would also come to fruition through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who would bring the glorious truths of the Gospel from the ear to the heart, applying the salvation that Christ had accomplished to them. Paul says this in Romans 1.4. He says that Christ was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In Romans 4.25, he adds that Christ was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. In other words, His resurrection proved that His work was not only completed, but that it was perfect. But that it was sufficient for the salvation of all who would believe in Christ. There's a very popular misunderstanding. It's probably especially prominent in some more charismatic circles, but that misunderstanding is that Jesus upon His death didn't ascend into heaven, but that He actually had to go to hell where He'd fight the devil or do whatever. But this is not biblical at all. That's not what Jesus did upon His death. What Jesus prays next here in His high priestly prayer, as He concludes this prayer for His own consecration, what He prays now is that the Father would now, that is upon His death, that His Father would now glorify Him with the glory which He shared with the Father prior to the incarnation and throughout eternity past. So you'll notice that in verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth. And then in verse 5, He prays for the restoration of the glory that was eternally His and the Father's. Now, what we need to understand is that those two uses of the word glory are are, uh, actually in different senses. In the first sense, in verse 4, what He's talking about is when He says, "I, I glorified you, He's talking about His faithfulness to display the glorious attributes of God during His life on earth. He displayed God's love. He displayed God's wrath, His justice, His mercy, His wisdom, His sovereignty, His truth, and and, and on and on. But in verse 5, he's speaking of a very different type of glory. The glory of verse 4 is a temporal glory. The glory of verse 5 is an eternal glory. The glory of verse 5 is a glory that Jesus willingly laid down during His time on earth. Even while He certainly glorified the Father in everything that He did. 
This eternal glory that Christ is asking to be restored unto Him is the kind of glory that's described in Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, which says of God, O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Yourself with light as with a cloak. That's speaking of God's glory and how He's He's dwelling in within that glory. The glory surrounds Him. The Bible speaks elsewhere of of this light. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. When Moses came down from the meeting with the Lord on Mount Sinai, you remember what the people did? They said, Moses, cover your face. It's, it's too bright. We can't look at you. Why? Because the brightness on his face was a reflection of the glory of God after meeting face to face with the Lord. This is what we refer to as the Shekinah glory. It's, it's the unapproachable, unfathomably bright light. This is actually the glory that's spoken of in the new heaven and the new earth, described in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, which says, And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. How? With the presence of His own glory in their midst. That's how. This is the glory that Christ prays to have restored unto Him as His reward for accomplishing His work on earth. And this glory was indeed restored to Christ. How do we know? Well, first of all, because He prayed for it. And everything that He prayed for in this chapter, He received. But more specifically, listen to what the Apostle John describes in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, as he describes his vision that he received on the island of Patmos of Christ in glory. He writes that Jesus was clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His hair, his head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. You get this idea that John doesn't have the words to fully describe how bright this light was how glorious Christ was in His glory. This vision proves for us that this prayer was answered in the affirmative. The prayer that Christ is praying here in verse 5 of John chapter 17 was answered affirmatively. The Father did restore this glory to the Son upon His ascension into heaven where He's now seated at the right hand of the Father reigning over His kingdom which is not a kingdom that's of this world. One of the things that we see here in verse 5 also, and this is important, uh, is that Jesus shared this glory with the Father throughout all of eternity past. Before the world was, before anything was created, before there was time, before there was space or matter. Now the Jehovah's Witness cult, anybody ever have them come to your door? Yeah, they, they, they go to doors. They've even come to our door, believe it or not. They, they run away uh, before long, but they do come sometimes. Uh, a couple of years ago was the last time they came. But they'll say that Christ was not God. 
They'll say that, instead, what they'll say is that Christ was an angel, Michael, right? That he was a created being. But does the Bible ever describe God uh, sharing his glory with an angel? No. Now, what we read in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, is God saying, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. Now, if God won't give His glory to another, and yet Christ tells us that He shared this glory with the Father before time, there's only one conclusion. It means that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not an angel. He's not a created being. He is eternally God who took on flesh and yet was still God. See, Jesus didn't just start being God when he took on flesh. No, no, he, he, he temporarily laid down his glory in order to become like one of us, but he was fully God in eternity past. He became eternally God and fully man. Fully God, fully man. Not just like a man, by the way. No, he literally took on our nature without taking on the sinful inclinations, the sinful fallenness of our nature, so that he could be our perfect mediator, reconciling us to God. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's talking about Adam, who was the first federal head. In other words, he was the first mediator, the first representative of a group of people. Everybody born according to the flesh. So, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so the obedience, through the obedience of the one, that's Christ, the many, that's us, will be made righteous. Who's the righteous? Who's going to be made righteous? We will be. Through Christ's obedience. Now, as Jesus concludes this prayer... What we know is that he was faithful to complete this work. We're reminded that only God is able to provide what God requires. And that in Christ, he was not only able to provide what he requires, but he was willing. And not only did Christ accomplish the work that was given to him by the Father, but God the Father was pleased. He was satisfied with the work of the Son. The question here is, are you? Are you satisfied by Christ's perfect life? As you consider God's demands that if we're to enter into His presence, we must be as pure and as clean and as holy and as righteous as He is. What do you think of that as it pertains to your life? And as you consider that Christ alone has lived a sinless life, And that He completed the work that's necessary for our cleansing from sin and for our salvation. Are you satisfied? Are you as satisfied as the Father was with Christ's perfection? Or do you think that you can add something to it? Are you finding yourself even tempted to chase after a lesser glory like the glory of fame or or money or things of this life which just come and go like a flickering candle in the wind. More importantly, friends, as you consider your life, are you completely convinced 
that it's a far cry, that your life is a far cry from being sufficient to satisfy God's demands of perfect righteousness on your own. See, your greatest need is not to do something to satisfy God. Whatever good and whatever faithful work you do, it will always be marred by sin. Even your best deeds, to some degree or another, know our greatest need is to be satisfied by what Christ did on our behalf so that we can be satisfied in Christ and for Him to reign in our lives. Because Jesus did complete the work that was given to Him by the Father to accomplish, and because He did so without sin, we can trust Him to be faithful to His promise to save all of His people, to save all who were given to Him by the Father. Not only to save us from the penalty of sin, by the way. That's important. We like to emphasize that, right? We like to emphasize that we're saved from the penalty of sin. We're not going to hell. We're going to heaven. We're going to be in the presence of Christ. We're going to be there in that verse that was described at the end of time in Revelation 22. We're not only saved from the penalty of sin, though. We're also saved, by, saved from its power. We're saved from its penalty and from its power. That's what we refer to as sanctification. But we're also, one day, going to be saved from the presence of sin. That's what we refer to as glorification. If you're reading through the golden chain of redemption in Romans chapter 8, you might see that it says, those He justified, He glorified. Speaking in past tense, even though it was to come. What does that mean? It means it's certain. It means it is as sure as already being done. We will experience freedom from the presence of sin one day. We will experience God's glory in a way that will not only satisfy us temporally here, but will eternally satisfy us. That's why it's something that's spoken of in past tense in Scripture. Because God is always faithful to His promises. And He is faithful to His covenant of grace. So it's as good as done. Those He justified, He tells us, He glorified. Past tense. Because God is always faithful and trustworthy. And so may you find your greatest satisfaction in life, in Christ. And may that drive you to living for and to glorifying Christ in all that you do as your King and Redeemer. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the things in Your Word that confront us like our lack of righteousness. The fact that on our own we could never stand before You without being condemned on our own. And yet You sent Your only Son, the second person of the Trinity, to live the life that we were supposed to live. The life that You demand. A sinless life. And He died a sinner's death in order that we could be reconciled to You. In order that 
our sin could be dealt with, and thus your justice would be demonstrated, and yet that your love would be demonstrated, and that you would clothe us in your Son's own perfect righteousness in order that we could stand before you forgiven. Thank you. Thank you for Christ's perfect life. Thank you for the fact that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you that he perfectly fulfilled the demands of the law in our place. And that by your grace, through the ministry of your Spirit, you have applied his perfect righteousness to us and you have taken away our sin. Teach us, O Lord, to live our lives in light of that truth and to find our greatest satisfaction in life in Christ. We pray this for his glory in his name. Amen.